something to keep in your mind. Um, we're having outdoor church. And outdoor church is going to be fun because we're going to... Thank you so much. Beautiful music. The hippie movement of uh, 50 years ago was never more than a minority. But it made an imprint on a generation of youth in the 1960s. Establishment was out and long hair was in. Traditional culture, long-held norms were passé. War, inequality, materialism, they were spurned. The slogans of the day were, make love, not war. Don't trust anyone over 30. Peace and turn on, tune in, and drop out. That's what the slogan was. By the way, this was my generation, the baby boom generation. In sheer numbers, we were a larger force than any prior generation in the history of the United States. It was the anti-war, hippie, counterculture movement. It was a powerful flame. It burned bright for a little while. Christianity is counterculture. A counterculture that is brighter, more powerful, and enduring than any other sort. And Paul has as much as this to say to the church in Corinth. We are at the fifth chapter now. We've been managing our way through this first letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. But instead of being a life-transforming, culture-shaping force, the church in Corinth was plagued with a pollution that staggered and negated any influence they might have had in Corinth or anywhere in the world. You know, often it's true that the greatest threats to the health of our church or the health of our personal Christian experience comes from the outside, from powerful, popular influences, people and politics and culture. But it's also true that, and maybe even more true, that the main threat is oftentimes within. A disastrous situation was polluting the church in Corinth, and it captured Paul's attention. And he wrote to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. The news traveled fast and wide and far and reached Paul. Sexual immorality is mentioned here. The Greek word is porneia, sexual sin. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. That's called incest. We're not given too many more details about that, but we do know that this kind of relationship is a sin, clearly. It was strictly forbidden in Jewish law. The book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 8 says, don't have sexual relations with your father's wife. And Deuteronomy even puts 
a curse on those individuals who are involved in this kind of relationship. It says, cursed is, is anyone who sleeps with his father's wife. So considering all these things, the woman must have been not the man's mother, but more likely his stepmother. Or Paul probably would have called her mother instead of the woman. And she also likely, commentators say, was not a Christian or else Paul would have suggested that she be removed from the church as well as this man. It's likely that the father was divorced or had passed away. But it was still wrong for his son to cohabit with the father's wife. It defies scripture. It defies reason and custom. And even in the morally lax and uh, the pagan culture that typified Corinth at this time and the Roman world, this kind of incest was not only rarely heard of, but was condemned. It violated every conscience except the conscience of the church. Interesting. And that's what really irked Paul. Instead of lamenting this situation and grieving over the sin that was happening in their midst, the church was smug about their tolerance. Notice Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, and, and you're proud, he says. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship this man who's been doing this? The church's response was opposite of what Paul expected. It was in light of Paul's comments, even worse than this man's relationship with this woman. There was no sense of shame, no sense of, of grief or indignation over this horrible situation. And it makes me think, how in the world could that be? How could that be? Maybe, you know, as I think of it, maybe the situation warranted a bit of tolerance, okay? Maybe... Well, maybe the man was very wealthy and acting against him would have caused the church to lose a rich donor. By the way, that happens occasionally. Money does have that effect. But it's hard to imagine that the church would have done something like this. I mean, Paul was in the church for 18 months and certainly he would have offered counsel regarding sexual morality. He must have, knowing the how licentious this pagan culture was and the fact that these were new Christians, a new church, and they would need this kind of instruction. He must have said something to them. And Also, you'll notice a little bit later in this chapter, in verse number 9 of 1 Corinthians 5, Paul mentions that he's already counseled them in regard to this issue. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, we don't know where this letter has gone. Evidently, 1 Corinthians was likely 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians was 3 Corinthians. There were more letters going around the churches than what we have today. And Paul had, had purposefully informed them regarding this situation, and they, the, the Corinthians had purposefully neglected Paul's instruction. But it makes me wonder why in the world they would do such a thing as that. Why would they do that? What was behind this lack of remorsefulness about the situation? Why didn't they, like Paul, 
mourn the situation and expel this person from their congregation. Why would the situation, like Paul said in verse number 2, make them proud, or in verse 6, make them boast? What was going on in this church? It may be that the church was suffering from an outbreak of an ugly sin called antinomianism. Antinomianism. That's, that means Christians are exempt from keeping the law. You've heard of that one before, I'm sure. It's a disease that's had disastrous impact on God's people throughout history. And the idea is based on a truth. You know, there's a lot of truth in most lies. And the same way with this. It's true that, that, that salvation depends upon faith. Everything depends upon the faith of the believer. Human activity is, well, it does nothing to merit salvation. Faith is received, I mean, salvation is received by faith. No activity will merit salvation. Maybe that's why Corinth was celebrating their tolerance even to this despicable degree. It was evidence, although funny evidence, that their freedom and acceptance in Christ created tolerance for them. They didn't have to do anything to get salvation, and this was proof of it. Love and tolerance were of highest order. Now, that may all be mostly true, but when it results in actions and attitudes like were displayed in Corinth, it becomes apparent that truth, biblical truth, God's truth, has been perverted, no matter what the church may think or say. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith. Yes, that is how it happens. But that saving faith should draw us closer to God in every way. Closer in actions, closer in attitude, closer in trust. And if it doesn't, and when it doesn't, as James said, it's probably not real faith. That's what he said in James chapter 2, 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. I like the way Ivan Blazin, my former teacher at the seminary and author of a book on Paul's letter, says it is a paradoxical truth. When we think we are really high, we may actually be low. And when we estimate ourselves to be low, we may truly be high. In other words, in other words, Christ in us, the Holy Spirit working in us and through us taking possession of the control center of our being, of our lives, it has a natural result to arouse us to godliness. That's what happens. The Holy Spirit inside shapes and deepens us in God's character. We become more sensitive to the ways that are pleasing to God and, and more attracted to paths that follow in His footsteps. That's what happens to us. Ellen White, I think, says it well when she commented in the book Steps to Christ, the closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes, for your vision will be clearer. 
It's true. When we think we're higher, maybe we are lower. And when we're lower, maybe we are higher. That is the way it was for Paul. And for Corinth, well, they just weren't getting it. Not at all. The sinful situation was destroying the church. And Paul wasn't about to let that happen. Notice what he says in verses 3 to 5 in 1 Corinthians 5. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So Paul has already come to a conclusion on this whole matter. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul is sounding pretty cold, isn't he? Pretty harsh, pretty straight, pretty hard. But he has a good purpose. He has a good reason. He has a saving intention in mind. He doesn't want the man to be destroyed. But according to Jesus' teaching, the church has an authority, not just authority, the church has a responsibility to enter into these matters and to make a decision regarding these things. Matthew 18, 17 and 18, Jesus said, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Yes, in Jesus Christ, the community of faith is to pronounce judgment on this matter that reflects the position of heaven. Paul says, straightforward terms verse number five hand this man over to satan for the destruction of his flesh but then he adds these words so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the lord those first words sound pretty ominous don't they but paul doesn't man, want the man to get sick and die and those last words in that verse make sense and make it all clear he hopes that the man is going to come to his senses. He hopes the man that, the, that this man's conscience will be stirred by this severe action of putting him out and that he'll repent and come back to the church. That's what Paul is asking. It's, it's something like the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told. This prodigal, wayfaring son squandered his life in wild and destructive living. He squandered his inheritance but then as Luke 15, 17 says, he came to himself. He came to himself, and that's really it. That's what Paul is hoping for, that this man will come to himself. Sin is sort of a, an insanity, really. It's an insanity that, that takes over our minds and causes us to squander our life and ruin our influence and, and ruin our reputation. But when a person hits the bottom... And sometimes it's a pretty hard bottom. When a person comes to himself or herself, that's the first step. That's what happened to this, the prodigal son. He came to himself. And as the parable of this man in the pig pen says, in this realm of darkness and evil, we come to ourselves and we say, I'm going to get up and go to my father. And that's really what it's all about. Getting up and going to the Father. God doesn't want us lost. Paul doesn't want this man lost. He doesn't want to see him to be lost, but to be saved. 
And so that's why he recommends this. And that's also why he's concerned for the church. How quickly a fault or a mistake of one or maybe a few becomes condemnation for the whole. That's the way it works. We may feel it's unjust and unfair. I mean, who would condemn a carpenter because, well, who would condemn all carpenters because one carpenter, one member of the trade, fails to build a house that's plumb and square? Who would, who would condemn all of them? But you know, the church is a different animal. We make bigger, broader, deeper claims. We are following the one who said to us, follow me. My actions, my attitude, my behavior represent more than me by virtue of my being a Christian. My life is to be a life that brings honor to God, that brings glory to God. My actions are to be an aroma of His justice, His mercy and love. My life is to flavor my home, to flavor my neighborhood, my city, my world with God's goodness. That's what God calls me to. We who call ourselves Christians, who take the name of Christ, must be something distinctive because of it. We are Christians. There's always an audience, you know. A seen audience and an unseen one. Think of Paul and Silas when they were falsely accused, stripped and beaten and flogged and thrown in prison and feet fastened to the stocks in Philippi. Midnight comes. Paul and Silas are singing. The dungeon is filled with their voices of praise to God. And the jailer hears their voices. It's the same way with us. There are unknown members. There are, there's an audience that's watching and listening, observing us, how we manage life, how we do life, how we handle stress, how we handle our times. They want to know how we stand up to the winds of culture. They want to know how we deal with temptation and trouble. They want to know what we read, what attitude we have toward those that look and act different than us. They want to know. They're watching. They're watching you. They're watching me. Personal influence, personal example, they matter more than we realize. Ellen White says in Testimonies to the Church, every act of our lives affect others for good or evil. How many? Every. Every act of our life. This is Mother's Day. We're celebrating mothers. We're celebrating the ladies of our congregation and their influence for good. And ladies know, men know, all of us know that every act of our lives is an influence either for good or for evil. Our influence is tending upward or downward, she goes on to say. It's, it's felt, it's acted upon, and to a greater or less degree reproduced by others. Yes, the cause of Christ is being represented by me, by us. A small infection can make the whole body sick. One mistake can destroy a man's influence, and even a church's influence. What Sheldon Vakanen said long ago is still true. 
The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But then he went on with a more somber twist. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When there's... I'm sorry, did I read that right? Yeah. I don't know whether I did that first one right. But anyway, the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they're somber, joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent, consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Paul knew that was going on in Corinth. And that was one irrefutable argument for the reality and freedom and beauty of the Christian life. That it matters. It matters what we do. And what we do, I'd say, competes with, it may not be, well, it may be just as important as doctrine and dogma. It may be. These are obviously important, what we believe. But what we do, having a consistent Christian life, speaks even louder than that. What holds for you and me individually also holds for the church, for all of us. Anything that casts a shadow on my witness needs to be addressed and remedied in my life or in our corporate life as a church. You let Christian fellowship and friendship do as much as they can and help as much as we can with a brother or sister But when persuasions fail and a person remains unmoved in acknowledging what they're doing, that their delinquency is hurting themselves and others, then the Christian community has an obligation to step in, to say something, to respond in remedial love, remedial love. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Paul chides them. He says, how can you be boasting? How can you be thinking yourself to be spiritual? How can you be be proud of your wisdom? How can you be wise when you're ignoring such an obvious, flagrant, moral blunder among you? That's what Paul is saying. The church community has a moral obligation for the conduct of the church community. The actions and conduct of individuals affects the life of the whole. Later on, Paul will explain this truth and we'll come to that, who knows when, but sometime this year. Later on in chapter number 12, he uses the image of the physical human body as a picture of the church. And he says, now you're the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. And I'd have to say, if one part is challenged with this, every part is going to be suffering from it. It's called corporate responsibility. And it happens all through the Bible. It's thinking has deep roots in Scripture. Remember the story of Achan? When the Israelites surrounded and encompassed Jericho, and the walls fell, and Achan went in and just took a couple things. Remember that those two things he took were strictly forbidden and they brought that act of that single individual brought disfavor and 
horrible consequences on all of Israel. That's the same reason why Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, lifts up his voice to God in prayer, heartfelt, earnest prayer and supplication and confession for his people. He's praying for his people because he has responsibility. That's why Ezra, this man of God who was led by God to restore and rebuild Jerusalem after its destruction 70 years later, that's why he mourned over what was going on with those who had returned to Jerusalem because they were beginning to act the same way that had resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. And he mourns over that. And by the way, that's the same word that Paul uses when he talks about the Corinthians and says, you ought to be mourning, church in Corinth. You ought to be mourning. As a poet long ago said, no man is an island. We are bound closely together, you and me, the body of Christ. We are responsible for one another, you and me. And my actions profoundly affect your actions and yours mine. Paul pictures this reality by talking about another um, imagery, and that's that of yeast. He says in verse number six and seven, don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Paul compares the church to a big lump of dough. And he says that ignoring this sin, allowing this offender to remain among them is going to have an impact on you as a lump of dough. It's going to infect. It's going to contaminate. It's going to influence the whole thing, Paul says. So Paul says, clean out the old yeast. And when he says that, he's inviting the church to remember an old story. An old story that was really the foundation of the people of Israel. Passover commemorated the liberation of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And God passed over every house that had blood on the doorposts and struck the Egyptians down. And now Paul uses the same imagery for the church in Corinth when he illustrates the importance of keeping the church pure. He makes a remarkable statement, in fact, in verse number 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. (laughs) He's really saying here, you are a new Israel. You're a new people. God has called you out as a new people. The church, not just Corinth, us here today are a new Israel. Christ is our Passover lamb. And he is that lamb that was represented by every lamb that was sacrificed on Passover to which that festival pointed. He is our Passover lamb. And as at for that Passover ceremony with that lamb, with the blood of that lamb painted on the doorpost of the home, so too God's people, Israel, God's church today, we come under the same protection. That's what Paul's saying. We come under the same protection, being spared of the powerful destruction at work outside. Anyone inside was saved. Anyone outside was not. And Paul is saying, that's what's going on here. 
Jesus Christ, his blood shed for you, for me. His blood accepted in salvation for you, for me. Marks the believers in Corinth. Marks us as believers today in Collie's Place. Believers who are God's distinct, God's special, God's released from the power of slavery people. That's what we are. That's what you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus' atonement wasn't meant to free us to sin, but to free us from sin. There's a big difference there. And Paul reminds them that God has already considered them new creatures in Jesus Christ. In Christ, he says, you're a new unleavened bunch. That's what you are, friends. New unleavened bunch. He says in verse number eight, therefore let us keep the festival not with the old bread of leaven, with malice and wickedness, <coughs> but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And it's against this background that Paul directs the Corinthian church to deal with this incestuous member. That's the context of the whole thing. And he suggests that they should relate to the world outside, that culture outside. It also gives us an idea of how we should, we should relate to that culture too today. He said in verse 9 or 9 and 10, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. In that case, you would have had to leave this world. Paul knows, hey, you can't remove yourself from everything in the world. You can't. It's impossible for the church to, re to, to avoid all the world's riffraff. Impossible. To do so, Paul says, you'd have to leave the world altogether. His vision for the church is not isolation. His vision for the church is to be counterculture. Counterculture, that's what God calls you and, and me to be, counterculture. He wants us to be an alternate society. He wants us to be a place of good behavior in a bad behavior world. That's what he wants in us, for us. He wants us to be spared from the disruptive, bad behaving. And it's a matter of discipline, internal discipline, personally and corporately. It's a matter of integrity. Not, not a matter of separating ourselves from the world, but being, being disciplined. And allowing God to do that in our midst. So what do we take away from these verses in Paul? Some powerful thoughts in my estimation. Anyway, these, these words for the church in Corinth. Well, first of all, we're called to be a, a distinct people. We are, you and me, the church today. As a people, we have a, a certain character, a certain mission, a counter cultural, prophetic community. That's what we are. A counter-cultural, prophetic community. And we have a part to play in society. First and foremost, we model God's countercultural standards. That's what we do. And the world is watching. The world is watching us. Now, we don't impose our standards on others through politics and through politicking, we don't impose them at all. Our job is not to Christianize our nation. 
but neither is it our job to separate ourselves. Rather, we're called to infuse ourselves into life, to be salt and light in the world. Counterculture is doing life contrary to prevailing life, and that's what God calls you and me to be. You know, we look nothing like those counterculture protesters of the 1960s. I remember those days well. But we are similar to them in that we're believing different things than what the society calls us, calls normal. We believe different things. We do. Unfortunately, as Newsweek magazine wrote a few years ago, while we remain a nation decisively shaped by religious faith, our politics and our culture are, in the main, less influenced by movements and arguments of an explicitly Christian character than they were even five years ago. In other words, we are not being the influence that we once were. We are removing ourselves. But God calls you and me to be influencers. He calls us to be salt and light. But it's such a delicate balance, isn't it? Such a delicate balance. It's hard to balance that, our influence in the world without falling into things like manipulation or antagonism or separatism or what we could call the relevance gap where our quest to be appealing just copies the culture. It's hard not to do that. And we see those expressions all around us, right here in Walla Walla, not very far from us, are communities of Hutterites, good people. But they believe that they are to be separate distinct. They live in colonies, almost self-sufficient. Their faith is ardent, it's personal, it's, it's encompassing, but their faith is separate. They respond to society by retreating. God co- does not call us to do that. He does not call us to do that. In our own church community, we have a bit of that flavor among us at times. Some people in their zeal for purity have codified dress and where we should live and they regulate faith and they retreat from cities especially cities as big as Collie's Place it's much too large too worldly but this separation ignores the truth of God's word and a task that we've been given by his word we're to be salt we're to be flavor we're to preserve and they can only do that if we mix in and mingle And light is only light if it gives light. (laughs) Other Christians have gone a different way instead of separating. They've declared war on culture. Antagonism is what they do. And I just read two articles in Thursday's UB about a state politician who is in some hot water because of this. It's called Christian Identity Politics. It's called Dominionism. I never heard of that before dominionism it's a sliver of extremism that says that christians alone should control government media institutions until the second coming of christ and so they're going to do that and they're trying to do that and they're they say it's from the bible genesis chapter 1 verse 28 god gave adam and eve dominion over the earth so they're going to take that dominion it's bizarre it's dangerous it's christian antagonism 
Another way that some people relate is to fall in what's, what we could call the relevance trap. Okay, the relevance trap, you know, that's, this is probably the most seductive for us as followers of Christ. We, you know, we want to appeal to the world, so we kind of become like the world in ways that undermine faith. And that's not right at all. We turn to hip in hopes that we can attract the hip. But that's oftentimes in that way we merely copy culture rather than being a witness to culture. That's what God wants us to be, a witness to the culture. And Paul invites us to do what's right, and that is to be countercultural, not separatist, not antagonist, not relevance, but our community is to be salt and light in this community, in this world. We are like God's preserving agents, actively working for the restoration of a decaying culture. We don't just remove ourselves from it, we try to help it. We lean heavy into Christ's power so that He can do His work in us and through us in our culture. We attach ourselves in caring ways, in helpful ways, to people and structures that are in danger of rotting. We are restorers, not condemners. We don't fight against people. We fight against destructive cultural tides that flow contrary to God's way, God's will, God's mercy and justice. We partner with God in restoring and renewing. That's what God calls us to. Second, and the last, these last ones are brief, Paul calls us to be a community that cares for and takes responsibility for one another. Yes, even spiritual wholeness of each one of us here in the body. We are a community that's been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. We are people set apart, but we're set apart for service and we're to live in a way that exemplifies God's goodness, His grace and love. And thirdly, right along with that, with that community that God calls us into, it also means that we are to be a community where there's discipline. And this is probably where it gets hardest for us as a church community. Applying the principles of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to our church You know, Christianity today, Christianity in America today is intensely private and individualistic. In other words, I do my thing, you do your thing. Paul calls us to do something different. He calls for us to be be accountable to each other, a corporate accountability, and that disturbs us just a bit. Our most beloved canon in life, it's actually a canon within a canon, is don't judge or you too will be judged. That's what we like to say. And that gives us reason. We say then, I won't judge you if you don't judge me. But what Jesus was really warning was not about judging, but rather he was warning against hypocritical self-righteousness. That's what he was warning. But instead, we think that he's telling us that we ought to have enlightened tolerance. We have deluded ourselves into thinking that the caring thing to do, the caring thing to do 
is to be infinitely non-judgmental and inclusive. That is simply a dark lie. That's all it is. It allows cancerous abuses to continue unchecked in the community, and that's not what the church is to be. And it's actually an excuse for our indifference, and it's actually an excuse for our lack of moral courage to step into things. Fourth, what I take away from this is that this community, we as a church community that exercises this caring care for each other, being um, accountable to each other, this caring community is a community of spiritual power. That's what Paul said. He said when he pronounced judgment, there was power, he said. The Lord is present with power. And you know, if I think, I think if we took more seriously the promise that Jesus is actually present with us, maybe we would approach life a little bit different. We might be likely to follow his teaching a little bit more closely. We might be likely to relate to sin in our midst a little bit differently. And finally, believing this reality that Christ is our Passover and he has been sacrificed for us, believing that reality, we need to learn to keep the festival. Now, some people are doing that in a bizarre way. There are some people who think that they're to keep the Jewish festivals, but that's not what Paul is saying in this verse at all when he says, keep the festival. Rather, he's saying, recognize that Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb, that Passover lamb that was symbolized in every lamb that was sacrificed at Passover time. And that lamb, Jesus Christ, gives us the power to be delivered from slavery. For Israel, it was deliverance from slavery. In, in Egypt. For us, it's deliverance from slavery to sin. That's the power we have in Jesus Christ, through him, for us. We are new create creatures, new creation, with a new reality, a new hope. We're in Christ, released from the power of sinful oppression. And we're on, on a journey, friend, together, you and me, a journey of new promise. A new hope that begins today in Jesus Christ. So let's claim that truth. Christ, our Passover lamb, sacrificed for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've heard this severe counsel, but important counsel that Paul gives to the church in Corinth in it is so relevant for us today. We have strayed from the standard that you have for us. Our community is more of just a bunch of us gathering than it is caring, caring for each other and what each one of us are doing. But help us, O oh Lord, to be transformed into the community of faith, community that, that exemplifies you and cares for each other and cares for our world in relevant and meaningful and impactful ways. Oh, Lord, you call us to be your aroma, your influence, your salt, and your light. And so may it happen for us today as a church family, as we go from this place. May it happen this week. May it happen 
this year at Village Church as we become your community day after day, week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath. You working with power in our midst is our prayer in, in Jesus' name. Amen.